Hello and welcome to the next edition of Lights in Europe. Today we speak to Alexandra Ekelenkamp, who is the advisor to the director for media and communications of the Council of the EU. Learn how she manages to stay on top of her game in this hyper-dynamic environment and also how to stay sane when she's expected to work 24-7 sometimes. She also manages to bring in mindfulness and yoga practice into the European institutions. So we speak about what's the impact of it and how one actually needs to learn to set the boundaries when the stress becomes too high. Sandra, thanks for accepting the invitation to Lights in Europe. You work as the advisor to the director for media and communications of the Council of the European Union. Would you like to explain in one sentence what it actually stands for? Uh, sure, yeah. I, um, I provide the director with um, advice, uh, most of it on communications. Um, I've written the communication strategy of the Council, which we're implementing. I also think about what do we need to do today uh, in terms of investments and, and other strategic plans to be relevant in one, two, three, four, five years. That's in a nutshell what I do. And so what I find cool about your job is that it really is one of the cooler jobs in the European institutions where people wouldn't typically assume that you can do top-notch communication in a bureaucracy. And so I've heard you say that you think it is possible that the European institutions attract really the top of the class kind of people who are experts in social media and digital communications. How was the path for you? How did you manage to create this kind of kind of job for yourself? Because when you were starting, I guess the whole industry was uh, basically at the beginning of, of the big momentum that it has reached uh, over a couple of years. So how was it at the beginning for you? Sure. Um, to tell the whole story, I think I have to go back a bit further, uh, back to 2009, um, when I joined the Dutch government, my first... Uh, full-time job after a couple of traineeships that I had done before. And um, I joined the Dutch government as a press and public information officer. And at the time, governments started to look at social media, started to adopt new ways of communicating, more digital communication. And so I was one of the people who pioneered use of social media in government communications in the Netherlands in 2009 and 2010. So I learned on the job, and that's the only way you can learn. Um, and I guess you need very generous people above you who let, who let you learn on the job. Yes, you need not just generous people. Frankly, I think that um, it's not generosity, it's, it's strategic thinking. I think good managers, no matter where you are, whether you're in a commercial organization or in a government organization, um, if your management is strategic and they know uh, you know, what's important for the future of the organization. They recognize talent when they see it and they give talent freedom to perform. And that's um, what happened to me in the Netherlands and it's definitely what happened to me in the council. I've always worked in the seven years that I've now been with the council in two different jobs. I've always worked with managers who have given me that freedom, that autonomy and who have empowered me to do what I do best. And that's because all of them understand the strategic importance of social media, of digital communication, of innovation in communication. They see my expertise and they trust me. Um, so I don't think it's generosity or charity. I think it's strategy. And forward-looking, really out of the box, I guess, courageous leaders who are willing to bring their institution where it's supposed to be and see around the corner. 
Yes. So how was it in terms of the disruption that you were trying to bring to the institution if you compare yourself to social media or communications advisors, directors in business? How does your job differ from the people who try to do similar kinds of communications in normal business? I think the main difference is that we have a different bottom line. In businesses, the bottom line is profit. It's growing your business, it's sales. And I think working for a government organization means that you know, it's not commercial, so we have a different bottom line. Um, that said, some of the goals are similar. We want to generate impact with whatever we do, you know, whether it's social media, webcoms, press. We want to generate impact and we want to spend our money as carefully and as uh, intelligently as possible. We want to get maximum return on investment. Uh, this is not dissimilar, actually, I think. It's just that the final bottom line is different. And so given that the KPIs, the objectives differ in how we measure impact, how, let's look in, let's take a step back, how do you actually measure impact, right? Because it's not just about the, the likes game and thanks God the social media platforms are gradually moving away from making it about the numbers of likes and some of them stop showing the numbers finally. So we are probably moving into much more qualitative assessment of, of the impact and the quality of the relationship we are capable of creating via social media communications. And mm. so if, if our one of our objectives is to communicate more impactfully and get a higher buy-in of European policies on the ground, how do you manage to, to measure that? Especially because of the multicultural and multilingual um, scope of work that you're doing for all member states. Wow, I think this is you know, measurement is the holy grail of communications in many ways. Um, there are some things that you can measure and that has to do with, you know, reach and engagement and all these metrics that social media platforms offer. And then, of course, there's the impact that's more difficult to, man to uh, measure. Like, you know, when does a tweet generate debate, discussion? Um, when do you have a mainstream media impact? Um, you know, we had a tweet from uh, President Tusk earlier this year about um, uh, there being a, a special place in hell for those who support Brexit without a plan. And that tweet was read out loud in the House of Commons in the UK. Now, can I put a measurement on that? A bit tricky, but at the same time, I think that's impact. We are having impact on the debate where it happens. That's what we, where we want to go. I think that was the first time that an EU leaders' uh, social media post or statement was read out loud in a House of Commons debate. So I think that's what we need to go for. We need to, I think it's very useful to have all these sort of metrics uh, that are digital, like, you know, website traffic and engagement and how long do people watch my videos, etc. And that those are important um, indicators. They are indicative of something, but they're not the ultimate result. Because I think ultimately we we should not focus on, oh, I, ha I had X number of clicks on my website. Ultimately, we should look at, have we been able to uh, shape the debate, um, to, to, to move the debate in a way? But that's really difficult to measure. Uh, a lot of it is anecdotal. It relies on more qualitative analysis that we have to do, looking at media, looking at coverage. Um, so it's... This is really where art and science of communication meet, if you will. But what you said about relation building, yeah, I agree. In, ultimately, that's what we want. Huh? We want um, EU citizens to feel like they can connect with what we're doing, with what our leaders are doing. So, yeah. 
And so you've mentioned President Tusk, who was very special and very popular, actually. Many people speak about Tusk Miracle on social media. And so this makes me wonder to which degree the success of social media strategist is a success of the individual politician, because they're a good communication material and he's really an excellent communicator. Or how do you really strike the balance between who he is and how much of a miracle can you create out of the politician that you're given to serve? Um, I think that authenticity is crucial for everybody on social media, not just for politicians, for any leader, for any influencer. If you're not authentic, people will know. And so, yeah, we've been lucky that uh, Donald Tusk really understands how communication works. He's become increasingly political, especially in his second mandate, I would say. And um, yeah, that in a way that has made our job easier because um, he is not, if you will, difficult to sell. I mean, what we what we do is we create um, the support structure that allows him to do his job in the best possible way. So yeah, of course, it depends on um, a politician's personality, personal preferences, their profile, uh, on a host of different things. But um, in general, I think a rule of thumb is you can't pretend to be something that you're not. Whoever you are, whether you're an organization or a politician or a leader, um, authenticity is crucial. So Otherwise, people can tell. People can always tell. People are not stupid. People can always tell. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we're at the beginning of the new hierarchies coming in town, of the new commission, uh, the council. No. And so Donald Tusk will be replaced by Charles Michel, who used to be prime minister of Belgium. What does it mean in practice for you? How much your everyday life will be turned upside down because the, the number one person you've been serving is simply somebody else from different cultural and language and political space? That's a good question. I mean, um, I remember managing the transition from Herman van Rompuy to Donald Tusk. Herman van Rompuy being, of course, the first European Council president. So I can speak from experience in this uh, in this case. Um, some things stayed the same. I mean, we serve in a way we serve the function. We serve the function of the European Council president. And so, you know, we are responsible for their websites, their social media. Uh, we do their press support. There's a lot of things that stay the same. But of course, each um, different person taking up the role has different preferences, different ways of working, uh, different language skills. So right now we're in the stage where we're really finding out what the what the next uh, president of the European actually? Council, yeah. yeah, what he wants, yeah, and this is really uh, he's not in the post yet. We're working on we're working very closely with him and his teams to um, with his cabinet actually to prepare uh, the transition to make sure that it runs smoothly, um, that he has all the supports he need all the support he needs from day one. In fact, we're already doing some communications for him because he's already been giving uh, some speeches and some press statements. So we support that already as he is incoming. Um, and then we'll see. Probably the matrix of the role that you're in is so complicated because you're trying to combine the personal PR reputation of this person you're working for and then there's the institutional communication and then we cannot also forget the national communication and the national politics that these people are always linked to is it how how to which degree does it make your life impossible in, in on an everyday basis that you have to strike the balance between all these three layers yeah well I have a couple of things to say about that I think 
our strength is that we we don't know any difference. I mean, just as a reminder, working in the General Secretariat of the Council means that we support two EU institutions, the European Council and the Council of the EU. But also, let's not forget about the Council of the EU, which is EU ministers, and that is chaired by a different country every six months. So actually, we are in the business of managing transitions constantly, because every six months, one of, us, one of our political bosses changes, basically. Um, and of course, we also support the Eurogroup, the Foreign Affairs Council, who have, again, different political stakeholders. So one thing that I think we are quite good at where I work is managing a lot of different um, political leaders and also dealing with regularly changing political leadership. And so if you look at our strategy as well, we focus mostly on how do we create the conditions for success, right? How do we create the optimal service offer so that whoever comes and whatever their message is, whatever their narrative is, they are supported in the best way possible. So I think if you compare us to other EU institutions or other government agencies, there's less, we have less control over what we say in terms of a narrative, but we do focus a lot on how do we make sure that whatever the message is, that it lands properly. So we invest a lot in, in infrastructure. We think about how do we make the best possible website that's you know responsive, works on mobile devices, stuff like that. How do we create social media platforms that are impactful and engaging? Um, how do we create new storytelling formats, different kinds of videos, um, uh, Instagram stories, um, on Facebook, all these new different formats that keep emerging. So when we think about strategy and long-term, we really think about the how and less about the what, because we know that the one constant for us is change. It's always changing, yeah. Mm. Is part of the how for you also controlling for the truthfulness of what's being said? Because many of us have the impression that there's a massive gap between what's being communicated, especially in the national media and on the social media of the individual politicians versus what's happening in the boardroom. And obviously we know that the summits are full of very difficult political compromises. And of course, uh, not all of it can, can see the light of the day and we have to respect that some of the deals have to be happening behind the closed doors. But then there's this fine line between the politicians stepping out of the boardroom and reporting something to the European media and oftentimes something a little bit to to the national media and on their social media. So is there a role for you in somehow trying to control for the alignment of the messages or it's simply impossible to do? That's an interesting question. I think um, the role that we have taken up as the Secretariat of the Council and the European Council is to publish on our website and on our corporate social media uh, a very factual account of what was agreed, meaning that if European citizens want to know, okay, what is the formal outcome of a council meeting, of a European council meeting, what's actually been agreed, what is the text of the conclusions, what, you know, what's actually been decided, they can always find that on our website and on our social media. Um, and that can be interesting for them also to compare to sto other stories they hear in media. So you're but empowering the audience to find the source of the information and then... Yes, yes, we offer a very uh, sort of neutral, fact-based rendition of what happened. And um, then it's up to, to people to decide um, 
what information they want to um, access. But yeah, we offer that. Yeah. How brutal is your lifestyle on this job? Because you are the pillar there for stuff that is happening 24-7 mm. oftentimes. And we know that whenever there's presidencies, the, the, the team of the presidency put themselves in this mindset of we're not going to sleep the coming six months because the EU depends on us. But you guys in the secretariat, you're there all the time. Yes. And so you are plugged into the speed that the, that the presidency country brings in. And we know that the presidency countries often work weekends, the summits often finish at 4 a.m. So is this the kind of job that can be done by, by a person with family, probably a more senior person? Or is it really just for the younger geeks who are willing to give a couple of years of their life to the institution and then head off to something else? That's many questions in one. Let me just tell you that um, I, what you say about presidencies is true. Uh, when we train presidencies, we always tell them, you guys are going to do a six-month sprint and we're the marathoners who run alongside you. Um, that's really how we see ourselves. Now that said, yes, uh, colleagues in the Secretariat, not just in communications, but frankly also in, in the policy DGs, um, but also colleagues working in you know, protocol and other supporting services. Yes, we have to be quite flexible. Um, and depending on which area we work in, we will have to work nights and weekends. Absolutely. I remember, for example, in 2015, we had a summer of a lot of extra crisis. Uh, summits, extra Eurogroups, extra council meetings. Um, yes, quite a few of us had to work all-nighters, had to sacrifice a few weekends. Now, the second part of your question, can you do that if you have a family? That is really a personal choice. I have quite a few colleagues who have families who also hold very challenging jobs that involve sometimes working nights and, and weekends. And I even have a colleague who is married to somebody who works in the European Parliament and you know as you know the European Parliament goes to Strasbourg so they have an even more complicated situation. I think um, whether or not you can juggle this kind of job with a family really depends on your personal situation. Um, I mean I think in general what I hear from colleagues I don't have kids but what I hear from colleagues is that childcare is pretty decent here in Brussels and also for for, for children of, uh, of people who work for the EU. Um, but yeah, it's really a personal choice and it's not, you know, it's not just family life. It's also what are your own energy levels? Um, how invested are you in your job? Do you want to have a lot of different things in your life? That's a personal choice. Looking at my own um, experience, I was hired to the council secretariat uh, in early 2013 as a press officer dealing with crisis communications and social media. I was responsible at the time for all of the social media of the council and the European Council president and I did Which that. Which now I guess how many people are doing We have that a team <laughs> doing that now, yes, yes, yes. But at, at the time it was all a bit more modest but I was doing it all on my own. And for about three and a half years I worked uh, crazy hours. I worked 50, 60 hours a week easily and yes, nights, weekends, absolutely uh, working remotely. Um, that's, you know, that comes with the territory and I, I loved doing that for a few years. And then I thought, okay, now is the time to change. And so in my current job, I have a more strategic role. I'm less frontline. So I have more control over my working hours. I don't have to work during summits unless I um, decide to, which is great to have that choice. Uh, but still, my job is very intense and I still do regularly work 45, sometimes 50 hours a week. 
Um, yeah, that's and so that's, one of that's the reality. ingredients in your recipe for handling this mm. burden is your yoga and mindfulness practice. Yes, uh, which you're very big on. You're also training to. You're also yeah, studying to become a trainer, right? And um, and you've also been leading on rolling this out in the council. So share a little bit more. How does it look if you want to bring a bit of a more spiritual, probably practice into mm. an institution which is very rational typically and I guess there's a lot of skeptics around you who, who don't wish to or don't understand uh, why they should create space for something like this. How does it look for you? That's a great question. So let me say first off that how you balance um, work and private life and how you take care of your mental and physical health is different for everybody. I have colleagues, some colleagues who go running, colleagues who go fishing, colleagues who do other things. So I'm not saying that yoga and meditation are the magic bullets that works for everyone. Absolutely. Not at all. Uh, it works for me. I um, have been practicing yoga for a very long time, uh, quite seriously, and I started teaching yoga last year. I'm a certified yoga teacher. And I am currently training to be a mindfulness teacher. And so, yes, indeed, I have teamed up with a couple of colleagues to launch a meditation initiative in the council. It's very, um, very basic in the sense that it's very easy for colleagues to join us. Three times a week, we host a half hour meditation during the lunch break. And we just do it in an office space um, with chairs. So there's no special need for equipment or clothes or anything else. People can just show up. Um, they don't have to sign up. They can just come if they have the time. We meditate together for half an hour and they go back again to their, to their busy work days. Um, what I hear is that the colleagues who come, they value the opportunity to pause, to take a break. We call this initiative breathing space. And so for them, it's really a space to just take a deep breath and, you know, really, really step back from our busy lives, which frankly are increasingly busy due to all the tools that we have, our smartphones and the email that's always on. Um, for me personally, it's been great. Um, sure, it adds, you know, yet more to my to-do list and it makes my life quite busy. But on the other hand, uh, the practices in and of themselves are very um, healing and, and helpful and also with yoga, yoga, the, the way I teach it, I teach yoga poses as well, huh? uh, yoga asana. And so that's a physical practice. And that's also nice to, to return to your body because people who work in our sort of organization tend to work with their brains. That's what we're recruited to do. And sometimes we forget that there's a body, um, you know, dangling underneath our brain. We, some colleagues um, uh, act, and, and sometimes I think I do the same, as, as if we're sort of these little brains in jars walking around on legs, you know. And so I think that that is another healing element of yoga and mindfulness, and, and also why it's so important to have a space for that in your work life is to be able to bring your whole self to work and uh, to realize that even if you're you know, super efficient and super professional, we are not robots and we shouldn't want to be robots. Uh, we have to maintain our humanity even if we ask, you know, or especially if we ask the maximum of ourselves. And I think this wisdom has landed um, everywhere. I mean, even Google has their corporate meditation program. It's called Search Inside Yourself, which is a title I love. I think it's very clever. Um, so I think most organizations recognize now that um, there needs to be a space for employees to take care of their of their physical and mental health. 
And this reminds me of an episode we had with uh, our colleague Nikita Stampa, who is now oh, in yes, the European School of Oh yeah, the yeah. European School of Administration. Who, while he was still in the European Commission, launched silence breaks, and he's basically saying the same thing as yeah. you, uh, bringing a bit of the human story into the institution is very important, and and ultimately the people who say they're too busy to take a break to be silent once they will have tried they understand that it actually earns them time because uh, once you manage to align a little bit with your inner voice or whoever uh, it is inside of you and whatever you call the voice it actually helps you win some time for being more efficient in what you're doing and handling yeah. all those last minute requests that land you on your desk and can really drive us all crazy. And I think it also changes the way you relate to your coworkers. I think my yoga and meditation practice have made me much more patient, um, much kinder towards myself and others. And I think honestly, if you work in a high stress environment where everybody's running around, and everything is last minute, it can be really easy to end up resenting that pressure and also resenting each other, resenting the person who sent you that urgent email or who keeps calling you. Whereas if you try to practice some of these things, it can help you be a bit more patient and withstand uh, stress and pressures. That said, there is a lot of discussion right now about the commercialization of mindfulness and the use of mindfulness as a band-aid for a bigger problem that's not getting solved, i.e. work pressures that are just growing, 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 and nothing's being done about that. Of course, we need to make sure that our work environment is still human. Huh? We can ask a lot of ourselves and of our colleagues, but we cannot exploit people either. So there has to be that balance. But What is the debate yeah. on commercialization about? The debate on commercialization is basically, um, so some of the articles that I've seen in recent months and years are about how uh, current mindfulness, the, the secular Western version of it, is completely divorced from its Buddhist oh, roots. Oh, the origins in the East, okay. The, some of that is about that. Um, others see it as a sort of pseudo-religious attempt to change, uh, to change our, our, our culture. Um, but frankly, the, and the, I think the most... Um, yeah, the criticism that I have seen that I think we really need to respond to is exactly what I've just said is often um, when people are under huge pressure in organizations because there's just not enough staff or not enough money for all the things that need to be done, um, often a knee-jerk reaction might be, oh, our staff need to learn to handle stress better. So we'll send them on a course. It could be mindfulness, could be stress management, whatever. Whereas the underlying issue is there's just not enough staff or there's too much work. So I think when practiced and taught properly and with integrity, what mindfulness can bring, especially to leadership, is the wisdom to see actually, hang on, sending my employees to a stress uh, management course is not solving the real problem that I have, which is yeah. I, have, I don't have enough staff or we're doing too much. So I'm hoping that introducing these practices in the EU institutions, hope that first of all, it will also attract leaders, leadership, and that it will help make wise decisions. And probably empower staff to be able to set their boundaries yes. and know what's the healthy way of uh, dealing with the, with the workload that's coming at us and then managing it also internally. 
one's, one of your other practices is also that you're a singer. You seem to be a yes. pro in setting your own boundaries and knowing when to stop your crazy job and, and do extra things. So what is your efficiency hack? How do you find time to train for a yoga teacher, mindfulness practice, speaking in a core? Um, yeah, in a, in a job which requires 24-7 responsiveness. Well, um, my current job does not require 24-7 responsiveness okay, anymore. Not anymore. So step one was doing the job where I did have to be 24-7, three, uh, 365 available, doing that for a limited number of years and then saying, okay, now it's time to transition to a more workable schedule. So the great thing about my current job is that, yes, it is intense. There's a lot of work to do, but... I have a lot of personal control over my schedule and freedom. So if I want to take a break, if I want to leave a bit earlier, if I want to take off for a few days to do a yoga teacher training, for example, that's all possible. I get a lot of trust and individual freedom from my manager to do that, which is great. Um, yeah, so I, I, as you say, I, I teach yoga, I train to be a mindfulness teacher, I sing in a choir. What you haven't mentioned is I also run two women's networks here in Brussels. Um, and so that's there's a lot to juggle there. So I think it's such Which a cliche. Like, I think mm. I've seen you involved with the Dutch Women Network. Yes, I'm a board member of the Dutch Women's Network here in Brussels. It's quite big. Um, but I've also launched a women's network in the council okay. secretariat. We've been going for about a year now. So and so Dutch. for me, the, the, the key is, and, and I know it's a cliche answer, but the key is extremely good planning in the sense that I've become quite good at being realistic about how much time certain things will take me. Um, I try to do things as early in advance as possible. Um, I try to be very vigilant about my calendar, about saying yes to, you know, obligations, meetings, etc. Um, because I hate cancelling on people. So I will say yes when I can reasonably make it and I will say no a lot. But I will say no in order to be able to say yes to Very other said. things Very or other people. Exactly, said. exactly. Yeah, I think it's the it's really the the magic solution of our era now how to how to plan your capacities and know how long stuff takes in order to be able to, and also to have your to know your priorities really clearly to know how much yes. all these interesting meetings that you could be going to are actually not yes. fitting into where you want to see yourself going. And so um, I'd like to ask you for an advice for people who are probably listening, who like social media, who are probably maybe millennials hooked on digital communications. If they would like to create this kind of perfect job for themselves, like the one that you have, what's your advice? Oh, wow, that's such a good question. Is it necessary to go through multiple layers of social media, let's say, jobs from smaller organizations upwards so that one arrives to very impactful place like the one that you're at? Um, so your question is specifically for people who want to do social media or? Yes. Because I think in social media, but in the communications world in general, the one constant is change. Um, the field is rapidly developing all the time. What was a key trend three months ago is not relevant today. And um, so you have to be, you have to get excited by that and, and be willing to constantly learn and develop. Um, another thing that was a really helpful realization to me as I started my career was that the perfect job doesn't exist. Every job comes with shitty stuff. And there are days when I spend, 
you know, hours poring over Excel tables and I wonder where my life went wrong. You know, and I like my job. I, I, I really enjoy my job. But I think that the, the, what's really important, especially if you want to work in the world of, you know, politics and foreign affairs and international relations, is that there's a lot of glamour sometimes and sometimes specific organizations or jobs seem incredibly cool from the outside. But in reality, it might be really tough and competitive to work somewhere and not all that much fun. So I think if you want to build a career, I think something you said earlier um, really resonates with me is, is you, you need to be very clear on your values. Like what makes you get up in the morning? What do you enjoy? So focus less on a specific um, job vacancy or a specific organization and more on what's the kind of work I want to be doing? What are the kind of people I like working with? Uh, what's the kind of management style that appeals to me? Um, I know, for example, for me that, um, you know, being empowered by my managers, being trusted, having individual freedom, being able to be creative, those are important things to me. That's really what drives me when I make choices for, you know, where I apply next for a new job. Um, if you can find a place where they will allow you to do some job crafting, that's great. So really shaping the job yourself, bringing your own uh, personality to it, your own values, your own ideas. It's really great if, if you can find a place to do that. That's not too, um, too prescriptive. Um, but all of that said, I realized that, of course, you know, I'm talking as somebody who, in a way, it's easy for me to say because, you know, now I'm quite established in my career and I have a permanent contract, which is frankly incredibly rare these days. And so I realized that sometimes it's tough because you have to hustle as well. Um, especially if you don't have a fixed contract. So if you can, I'd say never stop learning. Um, try to do something that you're enthusiastic about. And honestly, if you have to do something that pays the bills that you don't like, that's also a possibility. But then maybe try to limit the amount of hours you have to do that and try to develop a side hustle that really, you know, gets you going, makes you enthusiastic. And who knows, maybe that side hustle, whether it's, you know, podcasting or yoga teaching or doing something else, maybe that can grow into a career as well. Um, it so doesn't have to, This is a perfect but, yeah. bridge to the last question mm. that I was actually ask, wanting to ask you. You've given plenty of super useful advice to the professionals out there. And it got me thinking about people like me who've got there jobs they're passionate about and then there are these side hustles on the side where we there's many of us who are actually embarking into communications project but we obviously don't have those thousands of hours to study how mm -hmm. top-notch communication is done we don't have the teams we don't have the budgets but our audience judges our communication product by comparing it across all this plethora of communications which are done by expert teams like yours and so what's your advice to to the people who are like really amateurs in the communication mm. like myself or or whoever uh, the people who are doing the projects on the side of their full-time jobs how do you get the best return on investment or the best value for effort when you're trying to communicate with the outside world without really having the perfect resources and the perfect platform to support you? For me, the key would be focus. Really be very specific about what you really want to be known for and what you really want to be good at. I mean, in my yoga and meditation teaching, 
I have a very clear idea of the, first of all, the kind of teachers that I want to study with, the kind of teacher I want to be. Um, I don't teach in yoga studios right now. It, it would be just too much. So I do much more um, sort of corporate yoga teaching that links in a way with what I'm doing in my job um, in terms of, you know, change management and create, creation of networks and that sort of thing. Um, so if, let's say that you, you know, next to your job, you do a podcast and you do some communications, you don't have to be fantastic at everything. Um, and you can ask yourself, do I have to have, you know, a website and an Instagram page and a Facebook page and a Pinterest and this and that? No, be, be very focused in what you want. Um, good communication, frankly, is audience driven. So know your audience, know who you're doing this for, know what they appreciate, where they are, the platforms they use, the kind of communication they like. And also be willing, frankly, to be a bit geeky about it. I mean, I have spent so much time studying yoga before I started teaching. Um, and with all of the, the, the side hustles I pick up, I try to give it my all. I'm quite patient because I know, you know, this not being my full-time job, it means it will take more time for me to be proficient. Um, but I am committed, invested, and I am willing to, 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 frankly, be really geeky and, you know, read a ton about it. And, you know, the time that people would otherwise spend watching television or uh, endlessly hanging out in bars, a lot of that time for me goes into, you know, studying yoga, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much for all your, all your wisdom. You're welcome, thank good you. Good luck with all your projects. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!